Welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. COVID-19 has ravaged our countries around the world in so many ways, and we've talked about so many issues during this crisis. But one issue that has not surfaced as prominently as it maybe should, given the number of numbers of people it Im impacts, is migration. Borders have closed. People have stopped moving for work, for education, for travel, adventure. In Canada, we have struggled hard to bring essential workers from outside to work on our farms. Family reunification and spousal reunification have come to a bit of a standstill. And of course, even recognized refugees have had problems entering our country because of the travel restrictions. Absolutely, Senator. Uh, migration will be one of the most important issues all nations will need to grapple with as we recover from the pandemic. Will support for migration continue to be high with rising levels of unemployment? Will borders reopen, allowing people to move easier from country to country? And now that President Biden has embraced immigration, what does that mean for the rest of the world? So these are some of the questions we asked our two podcast guests on this episode, Dr. Irene Bloomrad from the University of Berkeley and Dr. Manjula Luthria from the World Bank. Both of them have very articulated uh, opinions on migration. Uh, they come with a lot of background and what is fascinating is they look at this issue from two completely different lenses because Dr. Bloomrad is a sociologist and Dr. Luthria is an economist. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. Wicked Problems, you may well ask, what are they? There is a, a definition that I'm going to share with you, which I think fits the bill. A wicked problem is a social or cultural issue or concern that is so complex, uh, it becomes difficult to explain and possibly uh, very complicated to resolve. I actually don't think of migration in that, that way, but that's the branding of our podcast, so we'll go with that. Certainly in many parts of the world, migration is considered to be a wicked problem. So on today's episode, we will be talking about migration and integration and its future in a post-pandemic world. And we're joined by two very uh, knowledgeable women who I think of as thought leaders who come from different perspectives on this complex issue. So first, welcome to Professor Irene Blomrad, who is the class of 1951 chair in sociology and the Thomas Garden Barnes chair of Canadian studies in Berkeley. And we're also joined by Manjula Luthria, Dr. Manjula Luthria, who is a senior economist at the World Bank and comes to, the, comes to us with really interesting positions on migration and world economies. You know, I think of this conversation between a sociologist and an economist, and I have to say, I think it's going to be very interesting. So thank you both for taking the time to speak with us today. And let's just kick off with sort of a general question. With the COVID crisis, with everybody locking down their borders and thinking of their own national jurisdictions and citizens first, uh, immigration and integration 
have been not just slowed, but put on the sidelines by the pandemic. Do they recover? And if so, how? Perhaps Manjula, we could start with you. Thanks, Ratna. Um, lovely to be with you, Irene and Paul. Um, yeah, we will recover, right? I mean, we are right now. Borders are closed. Flights aren't taking off, but that will change soon. Yeah. Um, there will also be an economic recovery, right? We don't know if it's going to be V-shaped or U-shaped or W-shaped, but that will happen, right? And Ratna, I can't help think that we've kind of been here before in the sense, no, we haven't been in a pandemic before, not in our lifetimes, but we've been here before in the sense that we have at various points of time asked, will we ever talk about migration again? Will we ever seriously actually put our minds to this, right? I can more recently recall a few years ago when refugees showed up in Europe, we said, okay, that's the end of talking about economic migration. Um, when governments, several governments started to lean rightward, we said, okay, now we're never going to talk about migration again. With technology, right, we said, well, there we go. All routine tasks are going to be taken over by technology. We're never going to need migrants again. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've been here before, but, you know, the underlying structural forces of wage differentials, of aging, of sort of the lower cost of information and moving. I mean, those are sort of the structural reasons why migration just endures as, as a topic of serious concern. Um, I mean, my, my real worry is actually something else, is that we do recover and then we, development community writ large, we go back to business as usual on migration. That's my real worry. And business as usual for me <laughs> means something like a sort of a low level activation on migration. And we talk about migration management and root causes of migration. And ultimately, we sort of keep talking. The subtext is about limiting migration. And we don't really ever fully then commit to understanding how we actually prepare for more migration. And I think that's what my real worry is, that we don't come back to devoting a deeper our effort to a deeper understanding of how international labor markets actually work and when they don't work and then what sort of interventions we really need to truly sort of prepare for better outcomes of, of more migration. Great. So you're already thinking into the future, but before we do that, because we will do that with you, let's get Irene to weigh in on this question. I agree uh, that, you know, structurally um, the pandemic has clearly put a pause on migration and it shows that if countries really want to shut down borders, they actually can um, to a pretty large extent. I mean, when we think about how substantially uh, crossing borders, be it land borders or planes, has really ground to a halt. It's, it's pretty amazing. But the underlying structural reasons that people migrate haven't changed. There are the economic forces that Manjula mentioned, but then also there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have family members across borders. And those family members still want to be reunited with their loved ones. 
Um, and we have all of the humanitarian concerns. There are millions of people in refugee camps or displaced and the underlying political and civic strife that push them out of their uh, villages and cities and countryside remain. And so the pressures of migration haven't changed fundamentally. Um, what will be interesting is, I would say in the medium term, whether countries use uh, the pandemic and fears of viruses mm -hmm. as an excuse to further build up the walls, both real and also technologically, or whether we take a different approach, as Minjula has mentioned, in terms of thinking about a more open migration regime. I think that's a very good sort of um you know, segue into, you know, what, what I think is interesting about this in the sense that, you know, a lot of migration is about public confidence, right? About, uh, you know, individuals and citizens in, in countries having a confidence in immigration, immigrants coming to their communities, immigrants coming to their country, and then also obviously people leaving uh, their country to go to other areas. And and so you need to have this sort of public uh, acceptance that immigration and migration is, is a good. And and I'm wondering about in the in the in the short term, as you sort of mentioned, that you know we have a situation where there's a high unemployment in a lot of you know developed countries, Canada, the United States. Um, and so how do we keep this uh, public confidence in immigration when? You know, at a time when when people will say, "Well, I need a job. Why do we need to bring in others?" Right? Uh, you know, it's interesting because Canada is actually saying that we want to raise our immigration levels. You know, to to have a situation where we recover because of immigration, or immigration will help us recover. And it looks like President Biden is looking to do the same in the United States. So, so I, I guess I have two questions. Uh, you know, uh, maybe first starting with Manjula is. Is what's the sort of economic case for increasing immigration during these challenging times? And then for Irene, what is the sort of social case that we could uh, we could put forward? So Manju, if you start, please. Hmm. I have two words for you on the economic case. Essential workers. Yeah. Hmm. We're now coming up to almost a year of being in a lockdown of sorts and every grocery store I've been to the checkout person has been a migrant every uber driver every Amazon delivery that showed up at my doorstep has been a migrant um, I actually had COVID earlier last year um, so did my husband and our interactions with you know uh, the person that handed us the, you know, who cleaned the door as soon as we entered, the person that did our nasal swabs, the nurse that came in with advice, the doctor that followed up every day, all migrants. So if anything, I think perhaps this period has sort of uh, strengthened the, the case to show how both at the sort of the low end as well as the high end, right, from, from the Uber driver to the doctor. Uh, how crucial migrants are to the economy and to our daily lives. We've, we've all experienced that. Um, Paul, I'm going to I'm going to take your question in a little bit of a different direction. 
because I, I want to gently challenge the premise that you had in your question, which is that people's opinions on immigration is related to their personal economic situation. And my reading of a lot of political opinion research is that whereas the economic condition generally in a country might influence people's attitudes towards immigration very slightly, the correlation between your own economic situation and your views on immigration is very weak. And it's surprising because mm -hmm. for the very reason that you mentioned, it makes total sense to say, I am suffering or I am afraid for my job, therefore I don't want immigrants. Um, it's, it seems much clearer in the public opinion data, and this is across Western democracies, so in Canada, the United States, and Europe, that a lot of the people who are most concerned about immigration their concerns really arise more from concerns around cultural and ethno-racial diversity. And so they are concerned about a rapidly changing demographic and cultural landscape in their country. And so to think through what is the case for migration, we can certainly raise important economic reasons, um, reasons of essential workers, an aging workforce, um, you know, needing people uh, in all different types of occupation. But to the extent that the concern is often cultural, religious, demographic, we really need leadership that frames immigration as a net benefit rather than as a zero-sum us versus them competition. And I think, as we've seen in the United States, there's a real danger when political leadership uses that us versus them mentality and further goes to dehumanize other people um, who just through sort of the luck of the draw, the birthright lottery, found themselves being born in Guatemala, found themselves born in Sudan through no choice of their own. And so they're in very desperate and difficult situations. And then to sort of see these people um, as threats and use words like around vermin and, and, and just like very horrible language um, is a dehumanization that I think is, is both dangerous and, and morally suspect. Um, so if there is a case for increasing immigration, I think economics is clearly part of it. But I also think there's really important work to be done in terms of political, moral leadership, the leadership of religious leaders to sort of try to imagine a better world where we, we sort of see our common humanity. And if, if I could just add to what Irene just said, if this is actually one of the few issues on which we actually find people vote against their own economic interest. So, Ratna, maybe this is this is where the problem really becomes a wicked problem, right? Um, you would think younger folks who are in the labor market and afraid of, in economist terms, substitution in the labor market, would be against immigration. People who are older, who are not even in the, who have very likely left the labor market and are a consumer of services which migrants provide, whether it is, you know, a handyman or aged care services, um, actually vote against immigration. And, and they're in no threat of losing their jobs to, to this particular migrant, right? So, so I think that is indeed where the problem becomes really a wicked problem, where you see people are willing to vote against their economic interest and in some sense shoot themselves in the foot. 
that's that's a, a fascinating uh, way of looking at it from uh, both Irene and Manjula, and and I I want to delve a little deeper that it's it's possibly not an issue of economics or even self-interest as Manjula says, but more about culture and identity where people feel threatened by the loss of a way of life that that they see escaping. Uh, uh, from their reality and they turn to immigrants and blame them. So one of my um, observations about the relationship between Canada and US, and we have a, a very uh, interesting interdependent relationship between David and Goliath, let me put it that way. Uh, but we are both countries that have long held the narrative that we are both countries of immigrants. You know, I when I go down to the United States, I see I see a nation of immigrants. When I come to Canada, I see the same. But because you're a louder, by you meaning the United States, you're a louder country, uh, you're a bigger country, you celebrate it more, or at least I used to think so. The narrative has shifted. Uh, there's and and this, my question is to Irene. Uh, that there seems to be the, to be the sense that immigrants are bad for the country as opposed to the former prevailing uh, narrative of, of the United States as a nation of immigrants. Can you help Canada understand this? How did that happen? How did the narrative shift from a nation of immigrants to a nation that wants to keep immigrants out? I would so I would say that maybe the distinction between the US and Canada is a little bit overstated if you look at again general public opinion. Um, so in Canada about a third of people really express some very strong reservations about immigration but that's not generally the tenor of the political discourse. I mean in the last federal election someone was running very strongly on an uh, sort of anti-immigrant or immigrant restriction platform and, and did very poorly. Um, and so sort of politically, that doesn't fly very well. And in the United States, if you look at some public opinion questions, such as the degree to which Americans agree that immigrants um, are a valuable addition to the country in terms of social and cultural enrichment. Actually, a very large proportion, more than the majority, say that immigrants are beneficial, and many Americans will agree that immigrants are very hard workers. Um, and in some cases, those responses are actually higher than the Canadian responses. But if you again look at the political discourse, there is a much stronger anti-immigrant discourse at the political level in the United States. So you ask, you know, why, why is there a difference? I would say a few different things. First of all, in Canada, up through the 60s, Canada was no more generous, I think, on a number of grounds to immigrants in the United States. So Canada, just like the United States, did a lot to keep Asian immigrants out of the country before the World War II. Uh, we know that Indian immigrants were kept out of the country. We know that Chinese immigrants were kept out of the country. During World War II, we had Japanese internment in both countries. Um, both countries essentially had a white only policy um, up through the 60s. 
One thing that did make a big difference, I think, in Canada is when Canada started reimagining what it was as a nation. And here it's particularly English speaking Canada, I think. They didn't want to be American and they didn't want to be British. And so what would this new Canada be? And when the language of multiculturalism started in the 1970s, many people grabbed onto that as an expression of the new Anglo-Canadian identity. We are going to be multicultural. We're not the U.S. melting pot. We're not the former British um, dominion. And so it became a point of national pride. Now, in the United States, clearly, this has also been a point of national pride, as, as you said, Ratna. Um, but it hasn't quite had that same, it was more contested. It was, it was more of a contested uh, narrative. And then the second thing that I think is super important, and maybe we can come back to this later, is that first of all, the number of foreign born or the proportion, sorry, the proportion of foreign born in Canada is higher than the United States. So over 20% of the Canadian population was born in a country other than Canada. In the US, the comparable number is 14%. And importantly, in Canada, the vast majority of those foreign born people are Canadian citizens. In the United States, it's um, barely half. And there's very complex reasons as to that. But what it means is that in the Canadian context, people of immigrant origin actually have a pretty big voice in politics, especially to the extent that they're concentrated in, you know, ridings in Toronto, Vancouver, uh, increasingly in places like Calgary, obviously in Montreal. And so they actually have quite a lot of power when it comes to elections. And in the United States, both because of gerrymandering, uh, you know, lack of campaign finance uh, reform and such, it's very hard for immigrants to break into politics. And so you don't have their voice in the political system anywhere to the extent that you have in Canada. So I think that actually plays a mitigating role as well. That's a, a fascinating look at our two different systems and how we've evolved differently. Uh, let's let's move on uh, to the economy. Manjula, you have written and talked about winners and losers in the inter in the in the migration sphere. So tell us who are the winners and who are the losers, and how do we reconstruct, as you say, looking forward to a new way of doing business? How do we reconstruct or disrupt? the current system so that we can dare start thinking about everybody is a winner. The famous win-win, yeah? Yes. Um, um, you know, there are always winners and losers. Most economic policies, if not all, have winners and losers. I mean, movement, you know, trade, capital mobility, the two that we frequently compare labor mobility to created winners and losers. Um, the problem, I think, has been it's a bit of a mea culpa on behalf of the economist community here. We actually haven't thought that much in terms of winners and losers. Yeah, uh, we think in terms of what we in economics call general equilibrium studies, which is really sort of looking at the economy wide impact of migration. Yeah, so uh, the metaphor often used is the, the, the size of the pie, right? So we've made the case and all of our economic case making has been based on the fact that if there were as a thought experiment, open borders, no one's arguing for, for open borders at all. But if there was a borderless world, the size of the pie, so global GDP 
would double. So we'd have a pi that's twice the size, right? And of course, that's, an, that's, that's a thought experiment, but any loosening of the, of, the, of the type regimes would expand the size of the pi. And as economists, I think perhaps it was a bit of hubris where we said, who would argue against that, right? Uh, you've got an expanded size of the pie, and now you guys go figure out how it, how it has to be sliced up, right? I think that was a mistake. I think we're learning some lessons here. I don't think we did that well enough even for trade for that matter, certainly not for migration. So this notion that migration expands global income and that it's good for everybody, um, I think has papered over some really tough distributional issues, however small they might be. Yeah, so the, 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 the pie may expand, but the slice of the pie that you get may actually shrink. It doesn't have to, but it might. Now, in economic terms, again, we would say, well, if the pie is expanded by so much, there must be a way to come up with a distributional mechanism that just takes something from the winners because the winners are going to get so much more. So employers, for example, are winners, right? Uh, they get to hire more migrants, right? Consumers are winners. They get services at a presumably lower price, right? Anyone who's a substitute, a perfect substitute for a migrant, and usually it's just other migrants, or some vulnerable workers in the native population may be hurt in a particular sector. We actually didn't focus at all on figuring out a distributional mechanism where some part, let's say, of what the employers might be able to, to make more on could actually be uh, distributed to a native worker who's hurt. So, for example, an H-1B visa fees, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's quite a hefty fees. Maybe it could be higher, maybe it could be lower, but a part of that fee going towards, say, training of workers who may be displaced by migration. Right? We didn't do this for trade either, but we could have. I think for migration, we need to do it even more. And so I think we're going to have to play catch up a bit to really get to that win-win, which we sort of see on the horizon. But I think it's going to require some deliberate thought and careful design of the mechanisms of how you how you compensate the losers, however small they are, because that's that's what becomes the lived reality and the lived reality becomes the narrative. Now, now Irene may say, even if you get the distributional part of it right, it doesn't matter because it's not about the slice of the pie that you have, whether it's shrinking or not. And so so maybe maybe that won't help either way. Uh, but I, I I do think as economists, we we didn't put enough focus into that. So so that's something we've that's an error of omission on our part. Well, you know, I've, I've rarely heard economists weigh in on this with the kind of clarity that you bring to it. You make it simple and easy to understand. So thank you for that, Manjula. I, I'm I'm struggling between the push and pull of, uh, you know, uh, uh, recrafting, reinventing our system so that there are win-wins, winners, everyone is a winner. And the hard reality, which I also see of what Irene says, which is, you know, it doesn't matter. In the end, it's about identity. So thank you for, for helping us understand 
the two lines of thought. On to the next question, Paul. Well, I just wanted to actually sort of continue in this sort of area and, and, and talk about one of the particular areas, and it's already come up already on the podcast about sort of the migrant workers, right? The, in Canada, we call them temporary foreign workers where they you know, come in temporarily. They often uh, work on farms across the country or they're in uh, uh, long-term care homes as personal support workers or they're in people's homes as, as uh, care workers in, in, in individuals' houses. And, and what we find there is that, I you know, that, that program has winners and losers, I guess, and it's not always consistent about who's winning and losing all the time. Um, you know, you have a situation where obviously employers get access to labor that's probably relatively less expensive than it would be to employ a Canadian, especially on farms. And a lot of Canadians don't want to do the hard work of working on farms or otherwise. Um, you know, the, the, the migrant that comes in, yes, will get some money and be able to look after their family back where they, where they are coming from. But there are also, you know, some problems there because they often lack a lot of rights or at least access to rights that, that Canadians and others and, uh, that will have. So, I mean, I'm wondering, Irene, if, if there's sort of uh, any lessons we can look at here about how do we, you know, maybe design better programs around migrant workers or, or so-called low-skilled workers. And is, is there really any differences between what the United States does and is, is there a difference what Canada does um, because uh, as we've already talked about, the pandemic has really sort of exposed this area of need for, for, at least in Canada, that we need migrant workers and we also need to treat them better than they probably have been treated for many, many years. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I don't know if I would call it a wicked problem because the word wicked is is loaded in so many ways, but I think I do think this is the some of the difficulties and challenges of, of immigration or migration policy. Um, and and Mitchell is right that, you know, obviously I'm putting emphasis on the social and the and sort of the identity concerns. But I do think that another fundamental aspect about how and when people support governments around their immigration policy is when they feel that the government has control over the system and that it's fair. And so to the extent to which you can do retraining programs for those who might feel that they're losing, that increases confidence in fairness and it increases confidence in sort of the, the overall system. And thinking through that, this idea of fairness, um, you know, I just taught a course this last semester with a political theorist, a philosopher, and it was a co-taught course and it was a lot of fun because I'm a data you know, I'm a data-driven scientist. Um, and my co-instructor is someone who really thinks about norms of justice and fairness and, and what do we owe to people. And we had this continuous conversation and I kept telling the students, I can give you information. I can draw on the economists. I can draw on public opinion. I can give you information about trends and, and you know, what the, you know, do immigrants steal jobs? Yes, no, no. Do immigrants commit more crimes? No. I can give you all of this information, but fundamentally, at the end of the day, in choosing an immigration policy, it's really a question of principles and judgment. And, and I, I, I know that's a long sort of tangent, but it gets us back to this question about what is at the heart of an immigration policy. And generally speaking, all immigration policies, Canadian, US, Europe, have three sort of pathways, right? One is humanitarian, and we bring people in because they fear for their lives, they're facing difficult situations, they might be climate refugees, political refugees. 
A second way is because of social ties. They're family members. There are connections between them and people who are already in our country. Or three, there's economic migrants. In the United States, the vast majority of people who can access a legal permanent resident status do it through family ties. Yeah. So over 70% of what are colloquially called green cards go through family reunification provisions. This actually means that unlike Canada, the US does not have that much of a robust economic migration policy. It's actually quite difficult to get one of these green cards through the economic side. And so what happens is that you have temporary workers. So in the United States, there are temporary agricultural workers through the H2 program, but you also have a lot of undocumented migrants because there's no space in the current immigration system in the United States for people to come in into agricultural work, low wage service work. There's just no pathway for them at all. And so you create in a way an undocumented po population, which then becomes a migration wicked problem or a challenge. What do you do with these people who have been in your economy for so long? One of the things that I appreciate about some aspects of the Canadian system, maybe not so much the agricultural workers, but when I think of like the domestic worker program is that despite many, many problems with those programs, for some of them, there is a path to permanent residency. And I, I would say, and this is a moral judgment, that one of the challenges when it comes to worker schemes is that they're so often pitched as temporary worker schemes because there's this fear that, you know, it's going to be a mass wave of people coming in, settling, and then moving away from these jobs. And so the employers have a huge incentive to keep these temporary worker schemes because then the person is tied to the particular job. But I think as a country, that is not, and again, this is more of a moral judgment. I think there's actually some social science research to actually back it up too in terms of investments and settlement and integration. But do we really want to have people think of themselves that they're perceived only as expendable labor? So one of the things I think that countries should be doing is having more of these pathways that you can become a permanent migrant. Maybe you come in as an agricultural laborer. Maybe you come in as an elderly care worker. But because you have an economic stream of migration, such as Canada does, and which is the majority of the migration, it doesn't mean it all has to be high skilled migrants. It can be people with other skill sets but we need to give them permanent status because if you don't, then you end up with the US problem of millions of undocumented people who are still filling those labor jobs, but not doing it within the immigration system. So Irene, this is completely music to my ears because I am launching a campaign to do precisely that, to wake the government, Canadian government and Canadian people up to the danger of having uh, of of meeting our labor market needs through the through the lens of high skills only, as opposed to paying attention uh, to temporary workers who also deserve and need, and we deserve for them uh, to become permanent. So this is complete music to my ears. Maybe we'll call you as a witness when we go to committee on this, when and if. Um, so wish us well. But I think it, it, I'm, I'm also sensing a, a bit of a contradiction here in, in, in terms of the way we think of ourselves in, as our as nations and yet present ourselves and our policies in a different way. So the United States, you know, the economic powerhouse of the world has an immigration policy that is really about family reunification. 
and Canada, which positions itself as, you know, uh, as, as a country of inclusion, collectivity, um, uh, a social safety net, etc. Our immigration policy is completely tilted towards skilled immigrants. So that's that's kind of an interesting takeaway for me. I, I want to spend a little bit of time with Manjula now on talking about the World Bank. Uh, and, and Manjula described to us the journey that the World Bank took, and I know you played a role in this, in moving it away uh, from thinking about its, about its mandate as being only about development and migration was off on the side. And then at some point, the World Bank embraced migration as a tool of development. Can you help us understand that journey? I probably can maybe illustrate that maybe best by describing, you know, my own journey, uh, my own introduction to the topic and then how I've had to change the framing in my own mind. Um, and I'm happy to share that with you. If you promise, we can come back and talk about the temporary worker oh, we will. issues we will. because I found myself disagreeing a little bit with what I just heard you both, or the direction that I think you were both heading in. So, um, so let's come back to that. Oh, okay. Why don't Why don't you take carry on the conversation and stick stick with that, and we'll come stick back to this question. Yes, please okay. do. Okay. Okay. I got worried as I heard you both say that you need more permanence. Maybe I'm maybe I'm putting words in your mouth now, but I I, I heard it was sort of a, a sense that we need a we need more permanence in the temporary worker programs. Yeah. And I, I got worried because I mean the the mobility of the poor and low skilled is absolutely central to, to, to the development part of, of migration, right? Um, at least for us in the World Bank. Um, this is central to poverty alleviation. And if you think about the poor, I mean, really their only main asset is labor. And the restrictions on where they can deploy that asset are huge. If you and I wanted to put our capital into another market which had a higher rate of return, there are very few restrictions on that, right? But if you were a poor person and you wanted to put your capital into your human capital, your labor into a market that had a higher rate of return, you have restrictions, right? So in that sense, this, that's why this is, this is a huge development issue for us. We, I certainly think that perhaps the only policy compromise that is possible is to allow, and that's what we see, is to allow temporary and highly circumscribed access to developed labor markets. I've seen, I've been in about, two, I don't know, over a dozen sort of bilateral seasonal worker programs being discussed between, you know, sending and receiving countries. And the fact that it's temporary makes this makes this conversation actually constructive, right? Otherwise, otherwise it's sort of is a non-starter. And so temporary temporariness seems to be the 
only way that developed countries are willing to allow the poor access to their labor market, right? And here I've seen a real tension between at least Western democracies, right? Those that don't have access to sort of draconian measures to round up people and send them home if they've overstayed. There's a real tension between what sending and receiving countries want, right? I mean, receiving countries, as you said, happy to take in the high skilled. The sending countries are really quite happy if the low skilled leave. Uh, they'll worry much more about things like brain drain and much less if the low skilled and poor find jobs elsewhere, right? Um, and that's where I think it creates a lot of the trust deficit between countries, right? This needs to be brokered. This needs to be needs to be reduced, I think, through careful design, through shared responsibility. And I otherwise, and to, to Irene's point, this really does become a wicked problem because I wonder if this is one of those unique cases uh, the mobility of low-skilled workers uh, is one of those cases where I think the extreme right and the extreme left concerned with wage suppression form an unholy alliance. And that's when you get this really, you know, that's when it becomes really hard to open up. And that's when I think this problem becomes a really wicked problem in that it's, it's, it's really wink-wink. So in the US, in a sense, runs the biggest temporary guest worker program, but it's yeah. wink wink, right? So, so I think making progress on the mobility of the poor, at least in my mind, means maintaining the sanctity in large part on the temporariness of these programs uh, with, of course, some access to permanent pathways over time for some people, but throw away the temporary aspect. And I wonder if overall access to developed labor markets will just go down in Canada, in New Zealand and Australia, with whom I've worked you know, fairly closely on these programs. I doubt we would have even had a seat at the table or been able to bring everybody to the table if we hadn't found a way to ensure that these programs would be temporary without the specter of dawn raids and you know what mm-hmm. fascinating um I'm, I'm i'm actually thinking that i need to have a separate podcast just on temporariness because yes. there are so many features to it um, um i wonder irene do you have a response i mean this i think this gets back to the I, I don't I don't want to use wicked uh, the the difficulty of of this question because there is the economic aspect there is the political aspect and then I think there is the sort of fundamental moral who are we as a people or who what do I believe in um, as a human being and so if the political compromise is that we're going to call this a temporary program maybe that needs to be done but i remain with my position that those temporary programs must have some kind of path to 
permanent status. And I actually think that this is beneficial to the employers as well, because especially when you get a temporary program like we find in Canada, in, in certain farms in Ontario or, or in Quebec, where people come back year after year after year to these same farms, they have real skills. Now, if they choose to leave Canada and go back to their home country, that's fine. That's their choice. But if they would like to settle in Canada and they would like to bring their family members to Canada and allow their children to benefit from Canadian schools and allow their partners to have access to a labor market and health care and a different way of life, then I think if we're using their labor, we should provide that pathway to them. And I think that Canada could be enriched because then these people, rather than always sending their salaries and their savings back to their country of origin, are going to invest in the country that they're laboring in. Um, and I think that, you know, hopefully if you're a good employer who's treating your workers well, then that person will stay and they will use their labor, you know, well, I mean, in, in California, here in the Central Valley, many, many agricultural workers are undocumented. And interestingly, many of the agricultural uh, interests are actually very much in favor of legalization for these undocumented workers, in part because the agricultural workforce in California is rapidly aging. And the people who are currently in the fields actually have quite a lot of skills. And so the employers actually want to keep these people. Um, and I do think this speaks exactly to what Manjula says that um, Manjula says that the the politics of immigration and particularly in the United States has been long this case of strange bedfellows. And by that, I mean that you have people who normally associate with right of center politics, say the Republican Party, and some of those, the business interests are in favor of migration, they're in favor of legalization. The US Chamber of Commerce has explicitly said that they want the legalization of 11 million undocumented workers in the United States. So there's a business interest that is very pro-migrant. And then at the same time, in the same Republican Party, you have people who are very, very concerned about cultural and racial and religious change. And within the Democratic Party, historically, up to about 2000, you had this same division that Manjula was, hint, Manjula was hinting at, where you have the unions that were very concerned about migration. And the last time the United States legalized about 3 million people back in 1986, the major unions were against amnesty. The, the big unions, the United Farm Workers, Cesar Chavez, they were not really in favor of amnesty because they were very concerned about wages and they were concerned about how employers were using immigrants to undermine this. And then at the same time, you had your more cultural cosmopolitans, you know, Ted Kennedy's, who were very in favor of, of uh, a generous migration policy. What's changed in the United States is that since 2000, the unions and the labor movement have become much more pro-immigrant than previously. And so currently the Democratic Party is holding more unified on immigration. And you see that in this new, very progressive immigration bill that Biden sent to Congress. Um, but, you know, we, we have these weird politics. Um, and so, you know, going back to temporary migration, maybe that's the political compromise, but I just think as a moral issue, we always need to have a path to permanent residency. You've both convinced me that, that we will delve deeper into the subject uh, at a future podcast, but I'm now curious, and thank you for that mini deep dive. 
uh, I am curious about the World Bank development and migration. So mm. over to you, a little bit of history there for a us. A little bit of history. Okay. And, and I'll share that really through my own sort of evolution and thinking. And I think to a large extent, it's sort of emblematic of the phases we've gone through um, institutionally. And so I might describe it in the following way. I think the starting point for most economists of my generation, you emerge from grad school with an economics degree, being fed uh, a diet of what we called, especially if you'd studied international trade, called factor price equalization. And I won't bore you with, with too much jargon, but basically it says, if you're, if you're trading in goods, then intrinsically you're actually trading in the factors that are embodied in that good as well. So, so long as we move towards free trade or freer and freer trade, and we right now are pretty much there, then over time, you know, wages will equalize everywhere, right? Well, that didn't happen. And of course, our economic models were based on very stringent assumptions, which we, which, which got in the way of, of that outcome. And, and then, and then I think we moved to a stage of saying, well, okay, well, that's, that's all right. But what we are convinced is that we can move economic activity out evenly to all parts of the globe, to all corners of the globe. That should be possible, right? And I think we put a lot of faith in, you know, business regulations, business environments, you know, sort of your standard prescriptions of good economic policy, macro, micro, meso, right? Um, I, I think that sort of hit a wall around the early 2000s. Uh, for me, it hit a wall in the context of working and sort of, you know, adhering to this particular line of, you know, you could take jobs to the people no matter where, so long as you had the right business environment. Uh, I think I, I certainly hit a wall on this when I was working in the context of uh, small remote island economies. Yeah. And I think it was a real learning for me to see actually, well, economic geography really is, is a curse. Uh, small size can really, you know, be a curse for economic activity. You don't have economies of scale or scope. Um, and so I think it was around 2007 or so that I started to reframe it as, well, you can take jobs to the people in some cases, but you really need people to the jobs in in many cases. And, you know, while that was a peculiar sort of situation uh, in terms of the kinds of countries we were, uh, I, I was referring to at that time, and it may not certainly apply to a whole bunch of countries, maybe only a handful, but it does apply to large, to, to several regions in, in several countries where it's really about people to the jobs and not just jobs to the people. And at that time it felt very controversial, um, but I think I was allowed to say that because I was really in the, it was really in the context of this very peculiar sort of corner solution, if you will, uh, which was a, a real clarifying moment for me. Um, I think then we moved to a sort of a framing of 
And I've certainly used this and I cringe a little bit when I think back that I did frame it this way, even though it's at that time seemed like a like like a like an advance based on where we were coming from. Um, we framed it as export. Mm. We said, you know, some countries export goods, some export services, and 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 some will export labor to deliver services. Right? Nothing wrong with that. But I I cringe a little bit at the fact that we sort of framed it. I certainly framed it this way thinking uh, and I think the subtext was well remittances are export income. They just like export income. They're foreign exchange and and I think it you know it uh, it it was an incomplete and perhaps even a partially offensive um, sort of framing of people as export right. Then thanks to a couple of really enlightened bosses, I was tasked with sort of reframing beyond just the export income aspect of migrants and into a much richer, mature, I think, uh, 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 framing, which is where we are now, Ratna, and maybe this will be a, a, a happy, a happy ending for you to hear. Um, I think now it's very much for us about bestowing sort of the full agency to human capital. However little or however much human capital there is in in people, right? And and the recognition, as Irene said, it's it's a lottery of birth. Uh, what dictates your income really more than anything else is where you were born. And so moving for prosperity is is something to be celebrated, but then also moving with safety and dignity. And so that's our framing now where human capital moves for prosperity, but we as a development institution devote effort, hopefully more and more in, in, in due course of time, to actually designing and delivering on this, on this goal of this mobility also happening with dignity and, and, and safety. Fascinating uh, journey. I don't know why I am uh, I am uh, echoing, but let me try and plow ahead. Maybe Paul, you could do the next question. Yeah. Um, well, I, I I had an interesting, you know, when we had a when Manjula, you were just talking sort of about the evolution of the World Bank. It, it sort of made me think about, and actually, I'll go back to Irene in the sense of you were talking about the evolution of of the Democratic Party, also the the unions as well in the United States and how they have evolved and changed their sort of perspective on immigration and migration. And I'm wondering, because you've written a lot about this, um, you know, there was big uh, immigrants rights movements in the in 2006 and, and that sort of carried sort of a wave of it. Uh, maybe it sort of to, went down a little bit, but there's been, you know, people have talked about in the last year or so with the Black Lives Matter movement that there is maybe a revival of uh, of you know, sort of an immigrant rights movement, and it's been brought together with the Black Lives Matter movement. So, is there sort of a? Can you sort of talk to us about the evolution of of movements and how they have an impact on on political parties, but also just public opinion? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, you know, in the in the United States, what's interesting about the current movement, and especially sort of immigrant rights and Black Lives Matter is that those two groups of activists, I think, are closer 
than we've seen for a very long time um, because they are converging around issues of incarceration. Um, so as, as many people listening to this podcast know, in the United States, one of the, the fundamental concerns of African Americans is the very long-standing over-policing, um, the uh, killing of black people by police officers, but then also more generally a system that has um, incarcerated African Americans um, in, in overwhelming numbers, you know, disproportionate to their, their percentage in the general population. And at the same time, and this preceded the Trump administration, there has been an increase in um, locking up immigrants who are facing detention, deportation. Um, and what's striking in the American case is that if you are in contravention of immigration rules, so if you had a visa, but you uh, overstay your visa, so you, you came to the country on a J visa, which, is, which can be sort of a temporary work or a temporary study visa, or you came on an H visa, which is a temporary work visa, and you overstay those conditions, then you become undocumented or illegal. Um, or if you ask for asylum and your asylum case is, is, dis, is uh, not found um, to, to be asylum, you've, you become undocumented illegal when you stay in the country. And, and so the, the, the incarceration of these people increased and has increased over, over the last decade, two decades. And the, that concern about incarceration and particularly the disproportionate incarceration of people of color have really brought these movements together. And, and that's interesting and new because while the immigrant rights movement has always taken inspiration from the civil rights movement of the 1950s, 60s and 70s and sort of the way that African-Americans were able to really push their concerns and, and you know, put their lives on the line in the street, um, that has been an inspiration, but there hasn't been very close um, uh, coordination previously. And then, as I mentioned, with the labor movement, again, it's a very fraught relationship. So uh, a lot of immigrant rights activists have taken inspiration from the labor movement, have worked in the labor movement, but at the same time, the labor movement has not always been very welcoming to those of immigrant backgrounds, and especially those in precarious status. Um, and, and the current moment, in part because of of the Trump administration has really brought people together in a more solidaristic way because they find common cause in opposing so many of the things that the Trump administration did. The open question is how that's going to work out in the next four years um, and whether squabbles might pull people somewhat apart or whether that solidarity will remain. Um, and, you know, in the Canadian case, I think I think there's super interesting questions moving forward, too, around immigration issues and the degree to which immigrants might support the uh, calls for justice of Aboriginal people um, and the degree to which there is overlap in issues facing racial minorities and visible minorities around discrimination and prejudice and the degree to which that overlaps with immigration concerns. So um, just to follow up on that, and, and uh, um, what is your prognostication for the next four years? Uh, um, you know, do you think the movements will be able to stay aligned together? Uh, will they have a political, uh, a political strength to them that you know, um, you know, movements are 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 important? And then how does that then translate into political? 
maneuvering, i.e., you know, people getting reelected or or not reelected and that sort of thing. Do you see it as as something that could keep everyone sort of together? We're, so social scientists are not that good about uh, <laughs> predicting the future. Like I think back to when I was an undergraduate in political science and how none of the political scientists predicted the end of the Cold War. Um, I think that the coalitions will remain roughly together. I think one of the things that the most recent elections have shown in the United States is the power of grassroots voter mobilization campaigns. And this is the case in Georgia, where you see how uh, the activities of African-Americans to register people to vote and to help them get to the voting booth really made a difference. And I would say the same thing happened in Phoenix, Arizona. So there's been uh, a lot of on the ground grassroots efforts among uh, Latinx populations to get people registered to vote if they are eligible and to get them to vote. And that was really spurred by the anti-immigrant uh, activism of people like Sheriff Joe Arpaio and others. And so I think that grassroots energy will remain. I hope it will remain. That's that's very much my hope. And I do think on incarceration issues, there are real overlaps in interests. The, the, the challenge is going to be to the extent that an administration has to make priorities. What do they tackle first? What do they tackle second? Where does the political capital get expended? The current situation in the United States, like many, many other places, is COVID first, economic recovery second, or the well, no, we have to deal with COVID before we can do economic recovery. So those are the two, those are the two priorities. And so things around immigration are going to be lower. And immigration is difficult because it splits the parties. Um, the immigration bill that Biden did is, or that has, has proposed is incredibly progressive. I I don't think it will get through anywhere in the form that it currently is through Congress. Um, and it's going to be very, very difficult for activists to have to make compromises. And if they refuse to make compromises or they feel that they should not make compromises, we're going to be back in the status quo of needing comprehensive immigration reform while nothing gets done. So I hope that things will happen in the next four years, um, but it's going to be very, very difficult. I'm back. Gratefully, technology works again. Uh, our producers behind the scene are telling us we need to wrap up, uh, which is too bad because we have some. I mean, I, we, I could carry on this this conversation for a long time. So I have one final question for each of you, and I'm and our producer is asking us to keep it short. So to Manjula, I'm still interested in the World Bank story. You know, you embraced. Uh, 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 migration as as a form of development. Do you believe other multilateral institutions that have that that see themselves apart from uh, this construct? You know, I'm talking maybe about other multilaterals like the IMF and and others. Do you think they will also follow suit? Do you see any indications? of interest in being less pure and more flexible, given the fact that we're living in a world that's stretching itself in so many different ways? Um, 
I certainly can't speak on behalf of any of them, <laughs> uh, nor do I speak on behalf of the bank on this, but my personal view, yes, yes, there is clearly an expanded role mm -hmm. for everybody, a long overdue expanded role for everybody. Multilaterals, I think national governments need to do more, local governments need to do more, local mayors, educational institutions need to do more, um, council leaders, moms and dads on dinner tables on how they frame this conversation. So I, I yeah, I, I, I think everyone needs to step up. Um, I think for multilateral development institutions, the challenge I think remains, and I think we will do better and better on it in baby steps, uh, and the challenge is the emphasis we place on places as opposed to the emphasis we place on people, right? So development is about a place, right? And until development is about a place, we're going to, I think, find ourselves in a narrative that will be asking people, so let's say migrants here, what have you done for place? How have you contributed to development proper as we understand it, which is development of the place? Yeah. What did you give back? Did you go back? And if you didn't go back, what did you, how did you contribute to development? I think that reframing from place to people, which is that mobility is already an expression of human development, if it is by choice, of course, we're talking about voluntary, that's going to be, you know, that's where I think of some of our hardwiring gets gets challenged, right? But when we're moving in that direction, and certainly we're a heterogeneous bunch at the World Bank, there's different parts of the bank that think more like this or less like this. I'm in, in the human development network of the bank, and I think we have a slightly easier time, you know, sort of adopting and accepting this, this framing that, that really places are supposed to be in service of people. Uh, rather than people being asked to to develop the place they came from by by doing something different from what they would be naturally and normally doing. In the interest of time, I should stop there and hand oh, back to you. Very, very interesting place and people versus the other way around. So my final question to Irene, and I should tell our audience, uh, Irene is a Canadian and we wish Manjula was too, but that's another subject for Thank another you. day, but we're very proud that we have an eminent scholar uh, with, with Canadian sensibilities and Canadian roots providing leadership in the United States. And you've talked a lot about the difference in politics, but straying away from the difference in po political discourse, and I, I think you're bang on right there, I want you to reflect a little bit on how the two nations arrange themselves around the business of immigration and integration. So for instance, Canada has a minister, a ministry, it has departments. The US actually not, I think. I, and, and, and in Canada, integration, the business of integration is, is a big item in our budget. Uh, whereas in the United States, it's left up to state and local governments, and there's pros and cons to both. Would you briefly reflect on that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I think it's 
I don't think the work I can that I do in the United States would have been possible if I didn't have that Canadian sensibility. So I think what what's really valuable, and I think this is for all migrants, is that because you've experienced in at least two places, often multiple places, your view of the world is informed by other futures or other options. And you can see both the good and the bad of those options, but it sort of broadens your horizons. And so, you know, one of the things that I've studied is the fact that in the United States, whenever we talk about immigration policy, it really means border and entry policy. Like it, it stops and starts at the border or maybe with deportation. But as you mentioned, Ratna, integration policy is not really something that the US federal government involves itself in. And the, there's one exception with refugee resettlement. So when it comes to refugee resettlement since World War II, the US federal government has partnered with uh, nonprofit organizations, voluntary charitable organizations um, to help resettle refugees. So these public private partnerships. And, but those have remained only really with refugee resettlement. And the US attitude is very much more laissez-faire, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm -hmm. You know, you have been led into the United States and, and this is, you know, a huge privilege for you. And now just go figure it out is, is sort of the, the, the federal attitude. And the Canadian one is, is quite different. And as you know, the Canadian one over the last, I mean, ever since the, the arrival of Southeast Asians, but even before that, has been this public-private partnership model, not just for refugees, but more generally across immigrant integration, such that there are federal, provincial, municipal grants that go to community-based organizations across the country to help with the settlement and integration experience. And at least according to my research, what that does is it does two things. First of all, it actually helps integration outcomes, because if you have a local community group that's gonna help you learn English, or French, or help you find a job, or help you negotiate how to even register your kids for school and all the rest of it. It's going to speed along the integration process, and I think we see that in the Canadian case compared to the United States. But the second thing it does, and I think this is really important, this gets back to moral leadership and sort of symbolic politics. If you're an immigrant in a country where you know that governments are partnering with civil society to, to, to increase integration, you're going to feel welcomed. You're going to feel that you truly are a member of the society or at least a member in waiting in that society and that the society is working to sort of help you become fully integrated or more fully integrated. Whereas in the United States, many immigrants, even if their daily lives are very multicultural and even if they live in areas where people are generally positive about immigrants, the stance vis-a-vis -vis government is much more afraid it's much more skeptical, and there's much more of a sense that I have to hunker down, lay low, um, because the the you know you're not sure who actually wants you or not, um, and that just produces. Uh, I think it hurts integration, and it certainly can hurt a more sort of uh, engaged civic and political sphere. And so it becomes reinforcing. So in the Canadian case, because immigrants have felt welcomed, they're gonna get participating in civic and political life. And then that might change the tenor of conversations around immigration. Whereas in the United States, and especially over the last four years, immigrants have been hunkering down and, and some very courageous individuals have taken to the streets and have tried a lot 
but the level of fear is real. Um, and that just can't help integration. It's just it's just not going to be productive if people are are sort of mortally afraid for themselves and their families. Um, and hopefully, you know, that'll change and the United States will Canadianify its uh, its policies in the future. But at least from my research, I would hope that immigration policy in the United States will not just be about entry and border control, but also about integration. And I think the public private partnerships are, are a very good way to move forward on that. You know, so much uh, to learn from each other. I mean, in other spheres, especially economic uh, development and innovation, we have so much to learn from Canada, uh, from the United States. But in return, you know, I always say that Canada cannot uh, be the country that accepts all the immigrants or all the refugees, but we can show the rest of the world how to do it better. We're not perfect, but we can show them how to do it better. Manjula and Irene, this has been a fascinating conversation uh, for me, but I hope, you know, an unintended outcome of this could be uh, work that both of you do together because you come at things from, from different angles and I would love to see uh, a, a collaboration on that. And on that note, I want to thank you on behalf of our, our listeners. Uh, you've le left us with lots and lots to think about. This has been a really rich discussion. To our listeners, check out our other episodes. We are continuing to find interesting people to talk to. And if the if listeners have suggestions, we are really keen to hear them. We will continue in future podcasts to move the needle as we examine some of the most wicked problems facing us. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Bye, everyone.